The following audio has been brought to you by Word of Grace Community Church. For more information about Word of Grace, visit wogcc.com. Today, um, we are in week three of following Jesus. Um, last, or the last two weeks, we talked about how Jesus calls and how Jesus heals. And today, we get to focus on and talk about the drive behind Jesus is calling, what drove him to heal, what drove him to forgive, what drove him uh, to do anything and everything that he did, what drove him to even rebuke people, what drove him to correct people, what drove Jesus um, to eventually lay down his life sacrificially on the cross, and that is his love. Today we're talking about Jesus' love. If you need a title, Jesus loves. That's what we're going for. Now, having said that, Jesus loves, there's, I think everybody in here kind of goes into one of three categories when we say Jesus loves or when we say God loves us. Either one, you're thinking, yeah, God loves me, and I know this because of blank. And hopefully that blank for you is because the scripture says so. Um, But it can be even more than that. It can be because the Bible says so, and so I believe it but also because he saved me, he redeemed me, he forgave me, he did this for me, he did that for me. Uh, For those who believe that God loves them, they usually and hopefully have many, many reasons to say that with conviction. Uh, The second group would be people who would say, uh, God loves me, which uh, which really makes me struggle with, why do I experience blank? I believe God loves me, but, but if he loves me, I do wrestle with understanding why he let this thing happen to me, or why he let me go through this, or why he let my friend go through this, or something like that. And then the third kind of category that people might fall, fall into in this room is God doesn't love me because if he did, then blank. If God loved me, then this thing wouldn't have happened. If God loved me, I wouldn't have fought cancer, or be fighting cancer. If God loved me, my loved one would not have passed away. If God loved me, I wouldn't have just lost my job. If God loved me, my marriage wouldn't be on the rocks. If God loved me, fill in the blank. And there are many, many people, and and it's not wrong to wrestle with those feelings or with those thoughts. I, I think all of us either have or do wrestle with those feelings and those thoughts from time to time in our life because we all go through stuff. Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. Not you might, not it's possible. He said you will have tribulation, and then he goes on to say, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. So when, when we're trying to validate, or validate, <laughs> validate, there we go, good grammar today. When we're trying to validate or find validation for the statement that Jesus loves or God loves us, what is the single most accurate way to find out truth about God and his character? Our feelings, right? No. See, that's one of the biggest problems with our society today. We make decisions based on our feelings a lot of times. We come to conclusions based on our feelings. We try to determine what's good or bad based on our feelings. And we'll philosophize things to death, and we'll try and pick things apart and try and reason. 
And we try, just like Pastor Derek mentioned last week, we try to define for ourselves things as good or bad. And who gets to define that? God gets to define that. So, my joke aside, what really is the most accurate source for finding out truth about God? It's the Sunday school answer. I know you, you can say it. The Bible, Scripture, you got it. Hold it up loud and proud. I don't guess you can hold something up loudly, but maybe you could wave it. I don't know. Scripture is where we define this. And so if you're a Christian, chances are you should believe the Bible, and the Bible um, should define what you believe. So I've got a list right here of scriptures about God's love for us and about Jesus' love for us that I want to just machine gun through real fast. I'm going to rattle through these scriptures really quickly, not stop, and this is going to be quick because I can't take a lot of time for this. John 3.16, the most famous Bible verse in the world. You could probably quote it with me as I read it. It says, for God so, yeah, loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5.8 says, but God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 35 through 39 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And I'm going to skip ahead to verse 37. It says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any Thing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you haven't caught on yet, when I do that, that's your cue. First <laughs> John 4.16 says, so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19 says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 1 John 4.10 says, In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I just barely started page 204, Okay. And that's not even all the scriptures in the Bible about God's love. I'm, for time's sake, I'm not going to read all four pages, but the Bible has plenty to say about God's love for us. Can I get a good, strong amen? amen. So if, if you don't believe God loves us, your argument's not with me or with any, any philosophy or any ideology. Your argument's with the scripture. You have a greater argument there. And so the Bible is very clear that God loves us. And anytime we think that God doesn't love us, because of something we've experienced. It's because we are philosophizing things and we're trying to reason and look at our circumstances and our situations and we try and use those things. And, and, and listen, I do not at all want to downplay your suffering. Suffering is real. And we all experience it in different times in our lives. None of us are immune. And so I don't want to, as I'm saying this stuff, I don't at any point today want you to think, well, he doesn't know what I'm going through, or he doesn't know how I feel, because that may be true. I may not know what you're going through. I may not know how you feel, but God does, and he loves you, and he cares, and if you are going through something, then there is a reason that God has not taken you out of that yet, and you need to trust him, and that's a whole nother sermon that I don't have time for today. But see, we, 
we have our own man-made short-sighted definitions of what good means. For instance, I would tell you Mountain Dew is good. But when I say that, what do I mean? Because you all know Mountain Dew is not good for you. It, it tastes good. And we have words like this or, or ideas of what good is, and we try to use those things to contextualize whether or not God is good. And who defines what's good? God defines what is good. And so if God is loving, then why would he let this happen to me? And although this question and topic in general, this could be an entire series, this idea. Uh, I'm going to touch on a couple of truths really quickly that as I, as I explain these truths or touch on them, get these kind of main points out here for you, you're going to be like, well, what does that have to do with what you're talking about? What does that have to do with, with where we're going? And it's, it's all going to come full circle and you're going to be like, oh, okay, I see now. So the first, first thing I want to point out, first point I want us to see today as we talk about Jesus loves is that the Father loves the Son. Father God loves the Son, Jesus, okay? And I can see right now the question marks hovering above your head. What, what does that have to do with it? And I, I just want to drive this point home. The Father loves the Son. In Matthew chapter 3, that's the account where we see Jesus baptized. He uh, has become an adult. He's ready to start into his ministry. And uh, before that happens, he goes to John the Baptist in the Jordan River and he goes to John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. He stays true to his title. Baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water. And it says in the scripture that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. And, and then what happens? A voice, this big booming voice comes from heaven and says, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father God from heaven for everyone to hear says, hey, everyone, this is my boy. I love him, and I am pleased with him. In Matthew chapter 17, there's another story called the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, this is a story where Jesus and his three closest disciples, kind of his inner circle, uh, Peter, James, and John, the three who were closer to him than all the rest, he takes these three up on top of a mountain, high away from everyone else to this secluded place, and then some crazy awesome stuff starts happening. This really spectacular stuff. God, in the form of a cloud, his presence descends in their midst, right there with them. And Jesus, his face starts shining with the glory of God. And his linen, his garments start radiating the glory of God. The disciples are sitting here probably going, oh, whoa, what's going on? Because Jesus for the first time is being seen in his glorified state. And when this is happening, God's voice once again comes out of the cloud and says, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He once again says, Guys, this is my Son. I love Him and I am pleased in Him or pleased with Him. John 3 and 35, Jesus Himself said, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. John 5 and 20 says, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. So those are four accounts really quickly that just give us a snapshot from Scripture that God the Father loves God the Son. So we get it. God loves the Son. The Father loved the Son, yet the Son said he didn't have even a place to lay his head. 
The father loved the son, yet the son experienced and endured temptation. Anyone in here endured temptation before? The father loved the son, yet the son was mocked, slandered, and persecuted. Anyone in here been mocked before? Had someone slander you? Maybe you've been persecuted? The father loved the son, yet the son was falsely accused. Ever had anyone say something wrong about you, something that wasn't true? The father loved the son, yet the son was betrayed by one of his closest followers. The father loved the son, yet the son was abandoned by those closest to him. Ever been betrayed or abandoned before? The father loved the son, yet the son was beaten, whipped, had his beard ripped out, his face spat on, a crown of huge thorns driven into his skull, nails driven through his hands and feet, hung on a cross, a spear stabbed into his side, displayed in public shame as a criminal while being totally innocent, all the while carrying the weight of every sin that would ever be perpetuated by every human that would ever live. All of that he experienced as a son who was loved by his father. Some pretty rough stuff. He endured as a son who was loved by his father. So it's in light of that truth, it's a little ironic if we're honest with ourselves that we would use our suffering, our discomfort, our inconveniences, our frustrations, our, our grief, our anxiety, our sorrow, our pain as reasons to conclude that God doesn't love us because he loved the son and the son went through some stuff. In fact, the son went through more than any of us ever will, right? We may have gone through some bad stuff, but none of us will ever carry the sin of humanity on us. father loved the son, but that didn't exempt the son from suffering. Well, but Pastor Stephen, the, the, that was Jesus. That was his job. That's why he came to earth. That was his assignment. So he was supposed to go through that stuff. Yeah, that, that's true. But at the same time, there's a lot of scripture that talks to us about sharing in his suffering. And, and, and if we just set Jesus aside for a moment and talk about some other folks there's this guy, the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. I want to show you a scripture that something he wrote in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to go verses 24 through 28. It says, Paul said, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That means he was whipped on his back 39 times, and that happened to him five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Any of us ever in here been beaten with rods? And I'm not talking about when Grandpa says, go out yonder behind the shed and get a switch off the tree, and we're going, you know. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about big rods beat with them. He said, uh, once I was stoned. Anyone in here been stoned? Well, let me rephrase that. <laughs> um, anyone ever in here ever been pummeled with massive rocks? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> um, said three times I was shipwrecked. Anyone in here been shipwrecked? Maybe once on a fishing trip or something like that, but three times he was shipwrecked. Um, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. I don't know if that has happened to any of us. Hopefully not, but if it has, probably not more than once. Um, 
on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, danger, Will Robinson, danger, and toil and in hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul went through some stuff as a son of God, and he was eventually beheaded by Nero. Now let's look at the other, the 12 disciples who became the 12 apostles. <laughs> okay, I'm going to hit this one real fast for time's sake. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified without, rail, without nails. He was tied to the cross with ropes so that his crucifixion would last longer. He was on the cross for two days. James was beheaded by a sword. Philip was scourged, imprisoned, and crucified. Bartholomew Bartholomew, according to two different historical accounts, was either crucified or he was skinned alive and then beaten. Thomas was run through with a spear. Matthew was stabbed in the back with a sword. James, the son of Alphaeus, was beaten and stoned and then clubbed in the head. Thaddeus was crucified. Simon, the Canaanite, was crucified. Matthias, who replaced Judas, was burned alive. And John, who wrote the book of Revelation and the other books called John, John is the only one who died in his old age, albeit while he was on a desert prison island. Not comfy. Don't you guys want to like dance around and sing for joy right now? Super happy, light, and airy message today. Then, th th that's the apostles. Let's look at, there was one, in one of the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, he said something that was interesting. He said in one, um, he told Timothy to drink a little wine for his frequent infirmities. He had stomach issues. Um, and if you want to get outside of the Bible and just look through church history, all the way up until today, Christians suffered and were persecuted. Many, a lot, lot, in fact, honestly, most, a lot, a lot, a lot worse than what we experience. Let me say again, I don't want to downplay your suffering because it is real and it can be very difficult and very hard. All of this is to just say what you're going through cannot be qualified as something to discredit the love of God for you. See, that's my point. Upon what basis do we know God loves us? If he lets us go through this, and if he let that happen to his disciples, who basically left all to follow him and followed him for three years and then did his ministry and planted the church, the early church, and if, if God lets that kind of stuff happen to his followers, then why would I want to follow him? That doesn't seem very good to me. Why? Why would that be a good God? Why would I want to follow him? If God isn't going to fix all my problems, why would I want to follow him? It's because he fixed our greatest problem. He fixed our greatest problem. And all of our other problems are momentary affliction that are working for us. A greater glory is what scripture said. See, God fixed the greatest problem we, we will have ever experienced, and that is sin. Your bank account may be a problem, but it's not greater than sin as a problem. Your family might have problems, but your family problems don't outweigh the problem that is sin. Your sickness might be a problem, but it's not a problem that outweighs sin. Whatever problem you might have experienced or are experiencing or may someday experience, none of them are worse than sin. And I wonder if we as believers and followers of Christ 
are more concerned or take more seriously sin than we do our sickness? Do we look at sin and go, that's uglier than the sickness I'm fighting? Do we look at sin and go, that's worse and that's uglier than my financial situation? Do we look at sin and go, that's worse, that's uglier than my family problems? Do we look at sin and go, that's worse and uglier than the situation of me having lost my loved one? And that's a hard thing to, to see and believe because sin is like, it's ethereal. It's you can't see it, you can't feel it, you can't touch it. And, and our suffering is very tangible. Pain hurts. Depression is heavy. Anxiety is strong. Fear is powerful. We go through very tangible things in this world and it takes a godly, eternal perspective to see things the way that God sees them. See, sin is the greatest thing, the greatest problem in life because that's what separates us from God. There's nothing in your life that is worse or more dangerous than sin. But the good news is, Jesus conquered it. How do we know God's good? How do we know if he's loving, if, if he let this happen or we let this? Because he conquered your biggest problem. Listen, if, if God never ever for the rest of your life ever did anything else for you, if you were always sick and if you were always broken, if you didn't have a home and if you lost everything, but you still had Jesus and you still had the forgiveness of your sins and you were still reconciled to God, your relationship was fixed because Jesus paid for your sin, you've got enough to spend every breath for the rest of your life saying, thank you, God. Right? We got enough to say, thank you, God. We have to remind ourselves of that. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 through 18, Paul said, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For though this, and notice this wording, though this light and momentary affliction, he calls our, our suffering in this world, he calls it light and momentary. So this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's basically saying the glory we are going to experience makes our suffering so small. And it feels big when we're in it. But when that day comes, we're going to look back at our suffering and go, <laughs> that was nothing. He says, for the light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You got to keep your eyes eternally focused rather than temporal, worldly focused. See, when we say God must not love me because he let this happen to me, or he didn't do this for me. I'm going to really simplify this. It's like my daughter saying, you don't love me because you didn't give me everything I wanted. Or you didn't do everything the way that I wanted. And believe me, my daughter lets me know that I don't please her all the time. <laughs> She's uh, almost 16 months old. 
next week she'll be 16 months old, and uh, <laughs> she lets me know plenty that I'm not making her happy all the time. But if she said that to me, I'd go, hold on, 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 hold on. Did you know I've had your poop on my fingers before? <laughs> mm-hmm, multiple times. Did you know you've peed on me before? <laughs> Did you know you have spit up on me before and I've had to change clothes and all that kind of stuff? Did you know you have messed up my schedule plenty of times? Did you know I used to sleep a lot more? <laughs> Did you know that when you were sick, and you couldn't sleep laying flat in your crib, that I let you sleep on my chest for a few nights in a row, which means I didn't sleep for a few nights in a row. I could go through the laundry list of all the reasons that I have to prove to my daughter that I love her, but her understanding is nowhere near mine. And our understanding is nowhere near the Father God's understanding of what we're going through. So our responsibility is to trust Him. So we've concluded... <laughs> The Father loves Jesus, and He loves us. Jesus loves the Father, and Jesus loves us. But let's remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about following Jesus. What does that mean for us? The remainder of our time, I'm going to focus on one question. This question is very basic, very elementary, very simple, but the implications of your answer to this question are profound. The way that you answer this question determines everything you do. Determines not only where you work, but how you work. Determines if you're a good spouse or a bad spouse. Determines who you associate yourself with. It determines what you do with your money, what you do with your time. It determines what you talk like. It determines how you treat others. It determines what things you choose to participate in and what things you choose to abstain from. And if you're looking, uh, following along on the YouVersion Bible app right now, you've got a blank there, and that's because I didn't want you to know what the question was yet. <laughs> you can write it in your notes. That question is, who and or what do you love most? Who and or what do you love the most? See, every single one of us loves different people or different things to varying degrees. We all love different people, Different levels, different amounts. We love different things, different levels of different amounts. I, and this is seen in the fact that I have said from my mouth, I love my wife and I love golf. It's not the same, right? I don't, <laughs> I don't like lay in bed, cuddle with my clubs at night. If I did, you guys need to pray for me and try and push me to seek help. Uh, greater than that, I would have major marital problems. Um, the, the, we love things to different degrees. And we know the greatest commandment, right? Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment of all the commandments? And Jesus said, well, it's easy. The first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And he said, and the second is like it, which is love your neighbor as yourself, because on all, or all the prophets and or all the law and all the prophets hang on those two commandments. Basically saying, if you love God with everything you've got, and if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you don't need laws and rules to say, don't do this and don't do that. Because if you're walking in love, if you love God, you're not going to do things that offend God. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to do things that hurt your neighbor or wrong your neighbor. And so, what we love 
is really what determines every area of our life, what we do. We know we're supposed to love Jesus. If I asked you all in here today, all right, guys, what's, what are we supposed to love more than anything else? Sunday school answer programmed, easy. Everyone's like, Jesus. All right, everyone gets candy. Right, we're supposed to love God more than anything. And we all want to say that we do. And there's days that I do. There's moments and times that I do. And I, being honest, there's times that I don't. But you're a pastor. Yep. All of us have moments that days and times that we don't feel like we love God or we don't have that. When, when God feels distant or we have desires or temptations that are conflicting to what we know we should do if we want to please God or if we love God, we all have a war between spirit and flesh as the scripture teaches us. We all are called to love God more than anything and sometimes we do good. Usually right after a Sunday morning service, we're like, I love God with everything I've got. We're all gung-ho because we were just inspired by the Word of God and the teaching and, and the common worship all together and the fellowship and reading the Scripture together. And in those moments, it's like, yeah, I love Jesus. You can have it all, Lord. And then Monday morning comes and work is bad or this situation happens or whatever it might be. Different affections try and sneak in and, and steal our affection away from the Lord. We all know we're supposed to love God more than anything, Sometimes we do, and sometimes we fail at that. But as we look at the life of Jesus, who did love his Father with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all his strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself, how did Jesus show us fully and completely devoted love? What is the example, what is the display he gave to us? Because we're talking about following Jesus, right? If we're following Jesus and, and we're following the way that he loves, well, we want to love the way that Jesus loves. So how did Jesus love? And I boiled it down to one word, sacrifice. Jesus showed us love by sacrifice. He sacrificed his position in heaven. He was seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven right next to the Father whom he delighted in, delights in, and the Father delights in him. He laid down his position to come, to come down to earth, take on human form and human flesh, and to die for us. He sacrificed his position in heaven. He sacrificed his time. Many times in Scripture we see that he was interrupted. He was sitting there teaching one time, and some guys tore the roof apart and brought a friend in. He gave up what he was doing at that moment. There was times he was going one way, and this guy says, hey, my daughter's sick. Can you come this way? And Jesus was like, all right, we'll go over there. There was one time he was walking through a massive crowd of people, and this lady tugged on his robe. Jesus, or Pastor Derek taught about this one last week, and Jesus goes, whoa, 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 stop. Jesus sacrificed his time. He was inconvenienced. He sacrificed his fleshly desires. He was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Do you think that he was like, yeah, I don't get to eat for 40 days? <laughs> no. He wanted to eat. He sacrificed his fleshly desires. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before he's going to be crucified, he is in the garden and he is weeping and he is so anxious that blood is sweat coming out of his sweat pores. He's sweating blood. That's the weight of anxiety that he had and so much so that he asked his father, he said, Father, if there's any other way we can do this, 
If there's any other way, can we do it? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Which led him to the ultimate sacrifice of his life. John 15, 13, Jesus himself said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. If we're wanting to follow Jesus and if we're wanting to see what his love looked like, it looks a lot like sacrifice. See, love leads us to sacrifice. Love leads us to sacrifice. Two things drove Jesus to willingly lay down his life for us. Firstly, his love for his Father. He loved his Father, the Father God. He delighted in Father God, and so he wanted to obey him and please him and satisfy his commands. And then secondly, he loved us, and he didn't want us to be estranged from the Father. He didn't want us to be estranged from the family of God anymore. It was his love for the Father and his love for us that led him to lay down his life on the cross. In Hebrews chapter 13, the author says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. How is it that Jesus could go through that? How is it that he was able to say, God, I don't want to do this. Father, if there's any other way, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. It's because of the joy that was set before him, his love for the Father and his love for you and me caused him to sacrifice. Love leads us to sacrifice. See, the thing is, we all already do this. You do this already. You already make sacrifices. That's why we ask that question, whom and or what do you love the most? Because you already make sacrifices. Every single one of us lay other things aside for what's most important to us. We all make sacrifices for the things that we love. That's why on Monday morning when my alarm clock goes off at 4.45 and I'm like, Jesus, help me. But if it's a Saturday and my alarm clock went off that early and I knew I was going to play golf at Black Wolf, I'd be like, ba-ting, all right. Good morning. What a wonderful world. Because the things that we love. But here's the interesting point with what I just pointed out. Notice, any other day... When I'm having to lay down sleep, it's like, but when it's for something I love, it doesn't feel as much like a sacrifice. We'll let that sink in for just a second. See, when you love someone or something, the things that you're sacrificing don't feel as much like a sacrifice because of what you are gaining. Jesus looking uh, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of his faith, or of our faith, who for the joy set before him, the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. See, we have a core value here at Word of Grace. We have 12 of them, I believe. One of our core values is we give up things we love for the things we love even more. 
See, I am now a husband. I am now a father. Just found out on Friday that my second is going to be a girl, so please pray for me. Two girls. Um, and so, I don't get to golf as much as I used to. In fact, last year, I golfed twice. The year before that, I golfed at least every other week. Last year, I golfed twice. Would I have liked to have golfed more? Yeah. But I wasn't sitting here going, I can't believe I don't get to golf anymore because I got this kid. <laughs> and my wife wants more quality time. She's not in this service. She's coming to the next service, so <laughs> I might play that one out a little differently when she's here. I'm already in the doghouse because I think I forgot my ring in the bathroom this morning. I don't say those things because those things weigh so much more than golf. I laid down golf a lot last year. But it wasn't like this big, brutal sacrifice because of what I was gaining. My wife and my daughter have brought me more joy than anything else in this world. Can't explain it. Can't put words to it. Stop it. Brought me more joy. So I'm not sitting here going, oh, I don't get to, woe is me. When you're focused on the reward, it outweighs the sacrifice. It enables you to endure, gives you the power to press through because of the reward of what you're gaining. I have a friend back in Texas, he's 28, still single. I saw him post one time on Facebook, man, I wanted to go do something with one of my friends, and he said he had to check with his wife. I don't think I'm ever going to get married because I ain't want no woman telling me what I can or cannot do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, laugh, go ahead. <laughs> and I'm just sitting here going, you don't know what you're missing, man. Think that way because you don't know what you're missing. I'm sitting here looking at all the things you've got to lose and give up you gain a lot more than you lose. See, following Jesus will require sacrifice. The cost of following Jesus is great. It is. It will cost you time. It'll cost you money. It'll cost you friends. It'll cost you comfort. It'll cost you reputation. It can cost you family. But the reward is Jesus. You get Jesus. There's not a greater reward than that. Jesus weighs more than money. Jesus weighs more than friendships. Friendships are valuable and they're important. Jesus weighs more. Jesus weighs more than fame, popularity, acceptance. Jesus weighs more than comfort. Jesus weighs more than time. There's nothing more valuable than Jesus. And although it costs a lot to follow Jesus, the reward is infinitely greater. Romans 12, 1, the Apostle Paul said, 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The King James and the New King James says, this is your reasonable act of service. When we look at what Jesus did for us, we've mentioned it quite a few times, and this is Holy Week. We've got Good Friday coming up where we really look at and focus on the price that Jesus paid for us with his life, laying his life down for us. When we look at that honestly, when we look at it honestly, not when we look at the scripture and the Bible as a means to fulfill our American dream, but when we look at what Jesus did for us honestly, and when we look in the mirror honestly, Paul is so right. Right here in Romans 12 when he says, your life as a living sacrifice is reasonable. It's your reasonable worship. This is not a drastic over-asking thing. This is not expecting too much of you to live your life, your daily decisions, the things you do, the things you don't do, asking you to prioritize your time with God every day, asking you to get serious about your relationship with other believers, and asking you to get serious about getting vulnerable and opening yourself up to accountability with other believers, and asking you to get involved and be a part of the Great Commission and reaching other people with the gospel, and expecting you to be willing to be inconvenienced, and expecting you to be willing to be thought as weird for believing in God, and expecting you to be able to lay down your time, or give money, or give of yourself in many different ways, expecting all of that stuff and more from you is reasonable when we compare it to what Christ has done for us and who we gain in him. He's the reward. In Philippians chapter 3, the apostle Paul said, all these things that I once thought were so important to me, I now consider rubbish. He said, some translation, one translation said, I consider dog dung throw it away, discard it, don't want it. He says, compared to knowing Christ. Jesus is the reward. So what's the point today? Is it, come on guys, we gotta love God better. It's not how it works. It's not just, okay, I'm gonna love him more. I'm gonna do better. I didn't marry my wife because one day I was like, there's a woman that I'm gonna just choose to love. No, I fell in love with her. I, I, I see in her an incredible, valuable woman an amazing woman that I'm like, I want to be with her for the rest of my life. And your love for God, your service, your obedience, your sacrifice to God will be a burden until you see the beauty and the reward of who he is and realize that he's more valuable than anything else in your life. Now, you might not be there. You might be in here today thinking, Pastor Stephen, I know that's what expected of me. I know that's what Jesus said in Scripture. That's most important. We, we know that I'm supposed to love God. How do I get there? How do I know that? And, and, and there was a guy in the Bible that one time was talking to Jesus. Jesus asked him, do you believe? And he said, I do, but, but help my unbelief. I think one of the greatest things that we can do is be honest with God and say, God, I know 
I believe you exist and I believe from scripture that you're good and I believe that you're loving and I believe in what you did on the cross and I know that I'm supposed to love you and I believe that I'm called to love you but I honestly, I, I don't or I'm faltered in it. Would you help me love you? Would you open the eyes of my understanding to see the beauty of who you are? Would you help me realize that you're more valuable than anything else that I want? Would you help me see and believe the treasure that you are so that I would want to lay things down, that I would want to follow you, that I would want to sacrifice? And then beyond that, it's your responsibility to stir your affections for Jesus. If you do love Jesus and you have loved him and you go in and out of days or moments or seasons of not feeling like you love him, listen, I love my wife with all my heart. There's days that I don't feel that. There's days that I'm like, woman? Again, I probably will wear that differently in second service. But I'm also mindful of the things that stir my love for her. The things that make me go, oh man, I'm so blessed to have my wife. When I stop and ask myself, how blessed am I to have my wife? And I run through the reasons that I'm blessed to have her. That stirs my affections for her and I'm able to love her more rightly. Same thing with, with God. It's your responsibility. I ask myself, what are the things that make me love God? For me, it's listening to hymns like Come Thou Fount. When I listen to that song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that song, every single time I listen to it, it makes me love Jesus. Or songs like How Deep the Father's Love or In Christ Alone. When I listen to those songs, it makes me love Jesus. It stirs my love for Jesus. When I get into the scripture or when I hear a sermon that is sound, biblical teaching, presenting the gospel and reminding me of my need for Christ and what he did for me, these different things. When I come to church and I hear a good teaching from Pastor Derek, or when, I, when I'm hanging out with other believers in my community group and we're edifying and encouraging each other, these different things stir my love for Jesus. And it's your responsibility to stir your own affections for Jesus. When you have seen, when you do believe, when you have loved, and you don't see it, and you don't feel it, it's time to man up and take your responsibility and go, no, I know I love him. I don't feel it right now. What are the things that help my feelings? Because my feelings lie to me all the time. And I need to get my feelings back in line with the truth that I know. After service, the, we're going to have a few people up front that would be happy to pray with you. But today, I just want to encourage everyone to just be honest. I give you permission to be honest and, and just say, you know what, there's days and there's times I don't feel it. Or, or maybe you're here and you say, I, I don't know that I have ever loved God and I want to. Did you know if you said that to God, he doesn't go, What? He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. He knows you inside and out. Just be honest. It is with your honesty and your humility, that's where God meets you. So that I can work with that. Father, I pray that today, 
Holy Spirit, you're stirring hearts. I pray that you're opening eyes, you're revealing truth. I pray that for those of us who have never known or experienced your love, that today, by your Holy Spirit, you would open their eyes to see the treasure, the prize that is Jesus Christ, that is more valuable than anything or anyone we could know or want or experience. Help us to see you, to love you, to follow you. And for those of us who may be going in and out of that, I pray that you would help us to take responsibility, to stir our affections, and that God, by your grace, you would enable us to love you rightly, to lay our lives down following you. In Jesus' name, everyone says, amen. You can stand up. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Word of Grace. For more sermons or any other information, visit wogcc.com.